Welcome back to the Jacob Wool Show. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. It's Thursday, November 24, Thanksgiving Day. We're here live as usual, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. And of course, the show appears on podcast apps everywhere in audio form shortly thereafter. Uh, this is going to be a regular uh, scheduled program. We are not going to be doing a Thanksgiving special, uh, as I know many broadcasts will be doing pre-recorded Thanksgiving specials. Uh, no, we're just going to be going over the news, and there there is a lot of it out there to discuss. Uh, that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be going over the news, keeping you in the loop. Uh, you never quite know how holiday shows are going to do in terms of ratings. Uh, sometimes you get more viewers. Sometimes you get a lot less. That seems to be the uh, more typical answer. But whatever the case might be, whether you are uh, on a plane today or you're with family or you're not, uh, whatever you happen to be doing, we're going to be having regularly scheduled programming, not a Thanksgiving special, not a pre-recorded interview uh, with a evergreen guest, nothing like that, uh, but just the regular show. Uh, and I'm happy to bring it to you. I am Mr. Consistency. That's what I'm known as in the conservative broadcasting space. I don't miss episodes. Uh, and so we, we begin, of course, talking about this mass shooting situation that played out at a Walmart uh, here in the Commonwealth of Virginia in Chesapeake. Uh, This is, of course, out of the news very quickly because it has turned out that the shooter uh, was a Walmart manager at the store, 31-year-old Andre Bing. Uh, Once images emerged of this man uh, showing that he was black, uh, of course, that quickly uh, made sure that the media would stop covering this. They do not like to cover uh, mass shootings that are carried out by black Americans, as we'll show you here in a moment. That is the majority of mass shootings in this country. Uh, so this was Andre Bing, age 31. He's a manager at that Walmart in Chesapeake. Uh, he opened fire by all reports Tuesday at around 10, 12 p.m., As the night team gathered for their shift, he shot 10 people in total before killing himself. Two of his victims were found dead in the break room with him. Uh, One of his victims was found dead at the store entrance, and three others died in the hospital. Another four people were shot uh, who remain uh, in the hospital today. It's unclear whether they will survive. Among the victims, a 22-year-old store worker, Tanika Johnson, who was named by her family Tuesday, Jalon Jones, 24, was injured in the shooting but survived and is now in the hospital. Reportedly, Bing was carrying a list of colleagues' names, which police say was his list of targets. Very strange. There was a video that came out shortly before a uh, Facebook Live with a coworker showing him seemed to be happy by all appearances. I will tell you another thing that you will likely find in this case is that Andre Bing was on uh, marijuana at the time of this shooting. Uh, Every toxicology report that I have managed to find, and they are sometimes hard to find, they require the filing of FOIA requests and the like. Everyone I have found in the last several years, going back three years, the toxicology screen showed that the shooter had a THC in their system. There is, of course, a link between marijuana and violence. There's a link between marijuana and mental illness. It's one that I've talked about on the show for years. I highly recommend you read the book, uh, Tell Your Children by Alex Berenson, about this topic. 
It's really just an introductory brief to the links between marijuana and violence and marijuana and and mental illness. It's not to say that marijuana on its own is going to turn somebody into a violent killer. That is not the claim at all. The claim is that it does not help matters when you already have somebody who is uh, who is this troubled. And uh, it is uh, really something to watch. I see you guys coming in here in the live stream. Uh, hello, everyone uh, up there in Canada. Uh, hello, uh, Tom and others who are streaming in here. Uh, it is... Uh, really something to see. Now, you know, as somebody points out here, it could have meant that he was high uh, the night before, not right before. Uh, sure. I'm just saying in a lot of instances, that is the case. Now, you know, other times too, I found many other instances where the person um, is either on video or, or talks about smoking pot before they did the mass shooting. So the point is pot's involved. It's not making peaceful uh, p people uh, peaceful and, and, and loving the second they smoke dope. Now, I mentioned here the demographics of mass shootings, which isn't often talked about. I want to go here. Uh, this is another picture of Andre Bing. He, Based on the eyebrows, he almost looks like he could be some kind of transsexual or something, but I, there hasn't been much reporting on that. I'm not sure what the case is there. Uh, it looks a little bit like some kind of a Fruit Loop. But you look here, this is the, the mass shooters from the calendar year 2019. Uh, if for those of you listening, it's, it's a lineup of every mass shooter in the calendar year 2019, a lineup of their mugshots, or at least images that were able to be found of them, generally mugshots if they were uh, captured alive. And what you see here is that almost all of them are uh, black. They are black Americans. Uh, so there are generally a couple who are uh, white and um, a, number who, a number of them who are Hispanic in some form. Uh, you see here 2020 was the same thing, even more of them. And we go here to the calendar year 2021, a lot more in the calendar year 2021. Uh, violent crime, of course, increasing massively year over year as of late. And what we see here once again is that the massive lion's share of mass shooters are black. Uh, that is what you see. Somebody says Andrew, uh, Andre Bing looks part Filipino or something. Yeah, it's it's I'm not quite sure. Could very well be. Now, the other news that we got out this week is that the Colorado mass shooter that went into the gay bar, as I predicted on the last episode of this show, I said, what you're going to find is that he has some kind of gay association, some kind of gay nexus, uh, that somebody who would shoot up a gay bar has some kind of gay identity, some kind of queer identity that they are at odds with, that they have a problem with, and that you would find that to be the case here. And I, and I made that very clear uh, that that would be the case on the last episode based on my experience and, and on my knowledge of these uh, matters. And sure enough, uh, that is what we now See, uh, the lawyers for the Colorado mass shooter have come out and they say that he is non-binary and uses the pronouns they, them, uses the pronouns they, them. Now, now, first of all, if somebody is identifying as non-binary, that is a warning sign. That means that they are mentally ill, whether it's a permanent mental illness, whether it's an acute mental illness that is a temporary state of mind. Uh, it is a sign of mental illness, of course, and it is something that should have somebody already on some kind of a watch list. We also, of course, as we reported on the last episode, showed you that uh, he had had standoffs with the police involving bombs and SWAT teams and things like this prior 
and yet he was uh, still on the loose. Colorado, again, once again, you know, proving just to be a total freak show when it comes to the kinds of people there and what's going on. Now, uh, CNN had a uh, transsexual, I, I guess you could call them, or transvestite uh, on the show. And uh, this uh, transvestite, uh, big burly man with a blonde wig and women's makeup on, uh, commented on this and said that it was very clear that just looking at him, he's not non-binary and this is a fake claim and it's obviously fraudulent. Uh, That's what this person says. Just looking at them, they say that. Now, of course, I don't know about you, but just looking at uh, this transvestite, it's clear to me that their claim of actually being a woman is very much a fraud based on their width of their shoulders, their uh, facial bone and muscular structure, uh, and every other thing about them. It's very clear that this is uh, something approximating a Halloween costume they're wearing in their attempt to identify or or make claim that they're some kind of a woman. Uh, But of course, this is what this entire uh, transvestite, transsexual, trans craze is all about. There's, there's nothing real about it. It's very real in the sense that people are castrating their children. It's real in the sense that teenage girls are being shot full of testosterone and suffering permanent damage and going bald and uh, having absolutely uh, destroyed uh, minds and bodies because of it. That, it, to that degree, it's very real. But the idea that these are people born in the wrong bodies and that they're actually something else on the inside, it's never been remotely true. It's never been real. And nobody has illustrated it more clearly than this transvestite uh, who went on a CNN, I guess by the standard, uh, her name is Natalie with two E's or his, his name. I don't know who the hell knows with these people anymore. Who the hell knows? Now, it turns out also that the shooter's father, uh, the Colorado shooter's father, well, uh, he is a, uh, basically he is a uh, porn star uh, who has used the name Dick Delaware. Uh, that's his stage name. Um, he's done a variety of hardcore pornography over the years. He has done MMA fighting. Uh, and there was a, a candid interview with him. Now, I'm, I'm not going to play it here just because it's, it's not even going to really come through on audio for those of you listening at the, the, the audio quality, how incoherent, but uh, suffice it to say that this father is a meth head. Uh, he's a meth addict. He has a clear signs of being on meth and, and all of the neurological damage that's associated with using crystal meth. Uh, the kid, on the other hand, is an extremely obese individual, extremely obese, um, just about as fat as you can get without being completely immobile. And um, yeah, by all indications, this is actually some kind of a homosexual situation, um, whether you call it non-binary, whatever you call it. And I think the other part that you would find, and we don't have data on this yet, but it wasn't this uh, young man's first time visiting that gay establishment. That's the other thing we're going to learn. Whether he went there in good spirits previously or whether he went there to scope it out. This was not the first time he had been there. That's my next prediction. You're going to learn that very soon uh, as far as this guy goes. Or, you know, maybe you won't. Maybe that information won't ever come out. Uh, That's also uh, seemingly possible. It's it's really something to, to see 
Uh, it says works better than uh, Dick Maryland. Yeah, I guess it does. Uh, so Dick Delaware, that is the father, uh, porn, pornographer. Um, and uh, it's just a, a totally jacked up situation top to bottom. Uh, not to spend too much time in gay land uh, today on all these on all this news. It's not a particularly prescient threat on this show generally, but there was some news out of the World Cup. Now, the ironic part about all this is the gayest part of the World Cup of all is the fact they're playing soccer. But we have this news out. Um, oh, by the way, before we get to the World Cup, I, I should mention uh, that guy who was throwing the bricks through the windows, also predicted by me and others to be gay. Well, yeah, turns out he is somebody who's throwing bricks through a gay bar uh, window and, you know, is, is generally speaking going to be gay. And he is. He has turned himself in. Uh, last name Koulian uh, has been charged in three or four recent attacks uh, caught on video. And he told police, I'm gay myself. That's what Koulian told uh, police when he turned himself in, uh, as predicted. Now, going to the World Cup, all this controversy over, uh, you know, it's, it's this whole deal of people want to insult Qatar, who is hosting this World Cup. They want to insult their traditional uh, culture, their traditional norms, their traditional values. And so all of these uh, people are taking it upon themselves to act like deviants, to wear rainbow this and that, to wear pink and blue uh, transgender flags and all of this stuff. Well, uh, there was this man who was uh, trying to do that. He was ejected for uh, doing it. He's wearing a big rainbow shirt. I'm sure many of you have seen this by now. And, uh, you know, you, you look you look at this individual and... Again, obviously, they are uh, very troubled um, and they are, you know, making a big deal out of the fact that they were ejected for wearing this shirt. Uh, Qatari weighs in and said he is proud that this happened and that this is what happens when you uh, insult their culture, essentially. But looking at this post, it was reminiscent to me of something and, and it just brought to light the realities of some of the divisions in our own country. And I posted this on Telegram earlier in the week. I said, basically, and, and, and I'm not going to read my own quote directly, but we have to understand here, there, there's some appreciable number of Americans, some statistically significant number of Americans who believe that children should be sexually mutilated by doctors, who believe that they should be exposed to pornography in their elementary schools. Yes, there is an appreciable number of Americans who think that that's true, that think that there is such a thing as a transgender two-year-old and that they should be uh, castrated as a result of this or uh, spayed. I, I don't know what the term might be, what they do to little girls. It's so sick. Yes, there there is a group of Americans who believe this. And while they don't make up a majority of the Democrat Party, there is an even larger group of Americans who, while they will not come out and explicitly say out loud that they believe that there should be gay porn shown to elementary schoolers, and they, they won't explicitly say that nine-year-olds should be castrated, 
what they are more than willing to do, very eager to do, in fact, is to vote into office people who will take those radical, sick, pedophilic, deranged, deviant ideas and sign them into law, memorialize them into law, make sure that people who approximate the kind of evil of Dr. Mangala in concentration camps are able to do it under the law, are paid to do it under the law by insurance companies who are forced to pay for this or by taxpayers. They'll sign into law the idea that these very troubled individuals should be in the United States Armed Forces. And so you have a group of Americans who who out and out believe in this kind of deviant, sick set of practices. You have an even larger group of Americans, call them the Democrats or the independents who vote for Democrats. And, and they, while not explicitly willing to come out and say that, maybe they're willing to even come out against it, they'll still vote for people who will write these radical, sickening policies into law. Yes, those people exist. I don't think you can find a Democrat on the ticket in most states around this country in the last cycle who would come out and say that we need to uh, ban this kind of destruction of children, this, this derangement and abuse of children. There's even many Republicans who won't come out against it. Republicans seem to think that the most important part of all of this is girls' sports and women's sports. I mean, on the list of atrocities here that must be dealt with, I think that the taking of women's sports from something that has already been so unexciting and something the public cares so little about and and makes it a little bit even less competitive than it was, I think that's near the bottom of the list. I mean, fair enough. Let's make sure that girl sports are fair. But that is about the bottom of the list compared with what's actually happening to young children in our country. And there's a lot of Republicans who won't even go against that. But but what this all highlights, what it all highlights is something that I think the average MAGA boomer in Florida might be reticent to believe. I think the average Trump voter in Michigan might be reticent to believe. And that is that the reality of what we have in this situation is, is that you, you are not going to persuade these people who believe in castrating nine-year-old boys. You aren't going to persuade them that they are wrong. You aren't going to persuade them that they are wrong. You're just not. Uh, And in fact, if you try, you're going to be viciously attacked by these people. Nobody's going to really come to your defense in any large degree unless you're a Canadian and happen to be lucky the way that Jordan Peterson was. But even his position wasn't all that radical. Uh, What will happen is you will be viciously attacked and you will be labeled a bigot. You will be driven from polite society by uh, these sickos that control and their abiding allies and left who control all of the country's major institutions, from Hollywood to corporate America to the banks to big finance to the government, of course, to the military, every major institutional power structure in the United States and, in fact, around the world, uh, in the Western world at least, is controlled by these people, and they will drive you from anything Uh, resembling opportunity within any of those institutional power structures, and they will label you a bigot for life. They will drive you from social media. They will drive you from having a voice or a job or safety. Yes, they will do that. 
So you aren't going to persuade them. Now, now what I think social conservatives in this country must recognize is that they share more in common with citizens of Qatar, at least in the areas that matter, perspectives on issues like these, important social, cultural issues that uphold the very backbone of our society. They share more in common, social conservatives in this country, with citizens of Qatar on these issues than they do with the Americans who they call their countrymen who are on the other side of these issues, who will hurt them, who will go to war with them, who will in fact do more harm to them in their personal lives than Osama bin Laden or ISIS or Al-Qaeda have ever managed to do to them. Osama bin Laden never puts you on a no-fly list for your political beliefs. Osama bin Laden never took your job away in Indiana. Osama bin Laden never had CPS come and take your kids because you wouldn't let them become trannies. But there are a lot of fellow Americans who will do this. There are a lot of judges who sit on the federal bench who will do this, who sit on local courts that will do this to you. And so you have to recognize, at least on the social issues that matter, on the cultural issues that matter, if you are a cultural, social conservative in this country, you share more in common with the citizens of Qatar than you do with many of your fellow countrymen. Now, maybe there's some small differences around uh, ownership of dogs or precisely how you dress, and a lot of that has to do with the climate. But it is the truth. And, and in fact, you share more in common culturally as a social conservative with the citizens of Russia than you do with the residents of Boston, Massachusetts, on average. Yes, you do. And the quicker that we can come to this recognition of irreconcilable differences, unmendable differences, the better. And the recognition of these irreconcilable differences, I think, forces a serious discussion about a national divorce. You will not be persuaded that children ought be castrated. No. And they will not be persuaded that children ought not be castrated. That's what we call an irreconcilable difference. And I think it forces a serious discussion of a national divorce. Maybe at some level, uh, the only option is to live and let live. Because you aren't going to persuade these people. And you certainly aren't going to use hard power against them. I mean, not unless you want to be thrown in jail for even talking about it, but we're not going to do that on today's broadcast. And I see a lot of people in the chat saying, well, what would that look like? Well, what about the currency? Well, what about the military? What? But that's the point. That's exactly it. You see, there's a lot of whatabouts, what ifs, and the like. And that's why you have to start to have the discussion. The fact that there are questions doesn't mean that you don't have the discussion. The fact that there are questions is precisely why you have the discussion. And the quicker that we come to the recognition of these irreconcilable differences, 
the better. The, the first step, I think, before you even get to the national discussion about about divorce, about breaking up, I think first you have to recognize that the differences are irreconcilable. And there are a great number of conservatives who spend a great deal of time on persuasion, on just trying to persuade, on just one more video, you know, one more TikTok of a teacher uh, acting like a pervert around her students. That'll do it. That'll persuade the left. It's not working. And it's not working. And, it, and it's, it's, it's something that reminds me of Alex Jones sitting there for, gosh, it's almost been 30 years in his case, I guess coming up on 30 years saying things like, well, we're on the march and the globalists are on the run and we're waking up people everywhere. And maybe so. And a lot of people will tell you that they were woken by Alex Jones, but by the same token, persuasion on whatever, on whatever level he was able to achieve. Well, how did that work? It's Alex Jones versus Hollywood versus the Chinese versus big tech versus Mark Zuckerberg versus the government versus the news media versus big pharma versus every industry lobby. And uh, you can only do so much with that. And here we are almost 30 years into his illustrious career and things are worse than his most dire predictions. They're worse than his most dire doom and gloom predictions. They're even worse. And so, in the world of warfare, there's this old adage that amateurs think about strategy and professionals focus on logistics. I'm sure many of you have heard that saying before when it comes to warfare and military and the like. Well, that's true. And in politics, there's a similar truism that is often said, which is that amateurs focus on persuasion and professionals focus on mobilization. There's a whole world of people that focus on persuasion, and maybe they manage to persuade some people. How is Turning Points USA done? How have all of these women's leadership summits done for Turning Points USA? Well, they haven't done very well because in the time that Turning Points USA has been around and has raised and spent over $100 million, all that has happened to the vote in that target demographic is that it has gone further to the left. Because the frank reality is, is that even if they brand the organization completely and utterly optimally, which they don't, one conference every December is not enough to overwhelm three, four, five, six hours a day of TikTok, algorithms, feeding content, tailor-made, tailor-fed, tailor-selected and popularized by the communist Chinese. And it's certainly not enough to overwhelm hours a day, all the other waking hours, spent being brainwashed inside these universities, which effectively serve as the left's version of madrasas, the likes of which the Taliban would use to radicalize young people in Pakistan or Saudi Arabia, where Al-Qaeda would use in different parts of the world. It's not enough. And no level of summits and no, it, what if Charlie Kirk had 300 million instead of 130 million? Or what if he had 800 million? It's not enough. Never would be. The unmarried female vote is now plus 37 Democrat. Charlie Kirk's efforts have not managed to 
achieve anything that has been electorally appreciable. There has been no change to demonstrate the usefulness of any of those activities when it comes to actual votes. And so perhaps it's time to start thinking about what must be done next. It's often said by people who are Fed posting, or maybe they're feds, or maybe they're just frustrated, or maybe they're just dumb. They say things like, there is no political solution. You'll hear this from people. You'll see it mostly typed from anonymous accounts, likely being run out of uh, the Department of Homeland Security or contractors like Booz Allen Hamilton working on behalf of the FBI. But whatever the case, you'll see things like this. But the point is, something like a national divorce is a political solution. It is not one which calls for violence. It's not one which calls for death and destruction and burning and raping and pillaging. Well, that's already happening in our country. No, it is a very much a political solution. It's a diplomatic solution. It's a realistic solution so far as we can work out some logistical questions around the currency, the Federal Reserve, the military, natural resources, which states go where, this set or the other. But it is very much political. It's, it's not a, a solution which calls for violence. It doesn't. It's not a solution which requires violence. It's not even a solution in which I think violence is even remotely one of the tools that's involved. There's no time for it. It's so complicated. so much paperwork to be done. There's so much bureaucracy to be weeded through that violence, there's, there's no time in the day left for violence. But it is something resembling a realistic solution, in my view. And a story that highlights that somewhat well is uh, this story out of uh, CBS this week. I've got the report here from Law Enforcement Today. The headline, even though officer shooting was deemed justified, family of Rayshard Brooks gets $1 million settlement from the city of Atlanta. Remember this story? Uh, this was the guy who uh, was passed out drunk in his car in Atlanta in the uh, drive through The cops come up. They're very polite, very nice, very gracious, when they probably shouldn't have been. And this uh, Mr. Rayshard Brooks uh, gets out of the car, starts attacking them, uh, tries to tase the police, wants to kill these cops. This is back in... 2020. And unfortunately, the only thing left for the cops to do was to shoot him and he died. Well, there was a great deal of riots in Atlanta over this. Remember, they smashed up CNN's headquarters and other things and all of this. But at the end of the day, the shooting, which was all caught on body camera and surveillance camera, was deemed to be totally justified. It was the best option the police had. It was really the only option that they had if they were going to go home alive themselves and keep the public nearby safe. They did their jobs admirably. They did their jobs well in this case. Charges were not brought against them. Thank God, because, you know, it doesn't take much. If you do your job perfectly as a cop, you may still be charged, much less an armed citizen, a la Kyle Rittenhouse. But nonetheless, his family is getting a million dollars paid from the taxpayers of Atlanta. It's just unbelievable. Just unbelievable. Uh, they remember they had a pro, they had a prosecuting attorney's counsel. They had uh, they they referred to to, to to several different prosecutorial bodies trying to get this 
a police officer or a couple of police officers really uh, prosecuted in all this. And they found there was no wrongdoing on the part of the cops. They were not charged. That resulted in even more riots. And now, nonetheless, the family of Rayshard Brooks, who he probably never even saw, took care of, did anything for in the first place, much like George Floyd's family. He was probably a blight on them, it often turns out. Well, they're getting a million dollars anyway. Unbelievable. Just unreal. Peter Edwards here in the chat says, every empire ends in depravity. It sure does. I know of Charlie Kirk, but don't listen to him. Somebody says here, um, just looking through the live chats here uh, as we as we go through the show. Um, just looking here through the chats. Let's see, somebody said something here about what is your relation to Olaf Gustafsson? Well, I don't. I wouldn't say that I have a relation to Olaf Gustafsson. Uh, he's somebody who I have known as a friend and acquaintance, I guess, for, gosh, it's hard to believe. It's been six years, almost seven years, more than six years I've known him. He's a, basically a Swedish guy, um, Olaf Gustafsson, um, who I met in Los Angeles in uh, 2016. In 2016, and uh, we have seen each other here and there over the years, really casually, um, as, uh, as just friendly, friendly acquaintances probably would be the best description. Um, that's that's my relation uh, to Olaf Gustafsson. Um, so, in any event, here we keep going. I want to bring you some updates on the FTX situation, uh, what's happening there. Uh, and and around the world in the world of uh, finance. Uh, first of all, just a couple of uh, a summary for those of you who might be limited on time. Uh, Sam Bankman Fried's parents, it turns out now, bought 19 properties worth $121 million over the past two years. That's right. The parents who are allegedly compliance law professors at Stanford. Now, I postulate they might be fourth, fifth generation Jewish money. But it appears maybe they just used client funds and bought 121 million of property for themselves. A billion of client funds are still missing. 70 million was traced to political campaign donations. 300 million was cashed out by Sam himself. 121 million traced to his parents' property. Yeah. So it's just unbelievable now that some of the updates that are coming out, I guess it is believable at this point. I saw this tweet. Um, it says, uh, in retrospect, this was a good uh, top indication, market top indication. And it, it's basically this group of of um, women who I would estimate are in their mid to late 30s. And they're just these kind of, they look kind of, I guess you'd describe them as bimbos. They have that look, big fake boobs and a lot of plastic surgery. But 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 ravishing looking women. I mean, these these if you for those of you just listening, I mean, good good looking broads. Um, not the kind of women you'd necessarily want to see naked, but they just in clothing they have a tremendous look. I mean, kind of that uh, ten for a real estate agent in her late thirties kind of appearance. 
if you know what I'm saying. I'm just trying to describe this to you. And they're out to like a Bitcoin girls dinner or something. And this is in November of 2021. And they're they're celebrating Bitcoin and they've all made a bunch of money in Bitcoin allegedly. And this was a good indication of a market top. And, and it tends to be. Uh, things like this tend to be a good indication when you, when the, some of the least sophisticated people you know seem to be making all kinds of money in something, or claiming to, or what have you. Uh, that's a good time to think about getting out of it if you're in it, because if it's so easy that even dumb people can make money in it, only a bubble can really do that. And those bubbles don't last long, and those profits that those people claim to be making are rarely ever realized. I mean, how many people have you heard of or know even from 2008, circa 2000, let's say four through 2008, who made millions of dollars on paper in real estate and ended up ultimately declaring bankruptcy when real estate crashed? Sometimes they actually cashed out millions, but then they owed too much on these other deals they did that they were effectively bankrupt by the end of it, if not formally bankrupt. You know, it's a good sign. And they weren't bright people, let's say. They weren't people you would consider to be intellectual stallions. Well, it's a good indication, generally speaking. Kathy Wood, who became famous for basically investing in Bitcoin and Elon Musk and all these highly speculative uh, kind of growth plays, kind of a Ron Barron style investor on steroids. She was just uh, absolutely wall to wall on uh, CNBC circa 2021. I remember talking about this woman. I said, man, she just strikes me as so kooky and loopy. I, I can't imagine that this, that this woman is, um, such a genius. Well, sure enough, there's been huge, you know, losses on now on many of these kinds of positions she's had. She's buying into Bitcoin more as of late. Um, and she was on Bloomberg just this week now, uh, saying that her price target for Bitcoin remains $1 million per coin. Yes, $1 million per coin. Now, that remains her price target. She calls this a, a battle testing situation for Bitcoin. Uh, meanwhile, in the fixed income market, the, the yield curve is now massively inverted with the uh, 90 day, uh, with the, now the overnight rate, that is, uh, being higher than the 10 year treasury rate. The last time this happened, by the way, the, the market, you know, basically the bottom fell out shortly thereafter. That doesn't mean that will happen this time, but it is uh, something quite interesting to observe. Now, I want to go here to this Genesis timeline. Genesis, we covered on, uh, I think the episode before last in a lot of detail, this is basically a giant prime brokerage kind of infrastructure, uh, for the crypto markets, uh, kind of firm. And they're tied to a lot of these other firms, but basically they said no material credit exposure to FTX. Then they said, well, we lost uh, $7 million. Then they said, okay, we have 175 million locked up in FTX. And then, uh, just a few days later, November 16th, this starts November 8th by November 16th is saying, sorry, no withdrawals uh, at this time. Uh, no withdrawals uh, available, which is strange. Uh, no new loans. Then they say, uh, okay, uh, we need a billion dollars or we can't avoid bankruptcy. That's what was by November 17th. And uh, November 21, they say we'll go bankrupt without uh, new money. So yeah, the, the Genesis situation seems to be going from bad to worse. Uh, meanwhile, Sam Bankman Freed was spotted uh, in the last day with his parents uh, in the Bahamas penthouse, and he's now listed for $45 million. It's so bizarre that he claimed this to be some frugal thing. He lived with his 10 friends. Well, yeah, he lived with his 10 friends in a $45 million penthouse. I think it had enough room for probably 20 people to live, but I mean, it was just 
uh, always some bizarre thing to claim that was uh, frugal or something. And um, so he was spotted there uh, with the parents. I have to say, for those of you watching, you'll get a sense for this, but this is his father up on the balcony talking on a speakerphone, presumably, or FaceTime. And I have to say that his father looks like Ed Buck. To me, Sam Bakeman Fried's father is just a spitting image of Ed Buck. When I look at him, it's just, uh, just to me, it just looks like that kind of guy, freakish looking guy uh, when you look at him. Uh, but again, now we know the parents have acquired $121 million of property there, presumably paid for with stolen client money. Uh, we don't know for sure yet, but presumably, including a $16.4 million vacation home there in the Bahamas. Um, but we have a report out now showing that, and, and as I was kind of explaining, it wasn't merely Democrats getting money from Sam Bankman Freed. It was also establishment Republicans. It was establishment Republicans as well. Now, the first thing to, to kind of point out here is that in reality, uh, the lobbying that was done by crypto firms was incredibly lackluster. And I, and I say this to you as a registered lobbyist here in Washington, D.C., a federal lobbyist. I've worked on financial services and regulation related uh, matters now for the last several years. And I can tell you that the crypto people have not been big spenders in Washington, D.C., not at all. They have not been big spenders at all uh, on 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 you know lobbying in terms of actually hiring lobbying firms to go out and, and get things done. They just haven't been. Um, you know, to give you a sense of of what I mean by this, um, you have to understand first of all, showing up as a huge spender in a single cycle will only do so much for you. It might get you acute actions, a letter sent to the SEC to slow them down, and things like this. But it's not going to uh, put you on on par with say the Cokes or the Mellons, or the Waltons, or people that have been giving millions of dollars just like this every single cycle for 50 years, or 60 years, or 100 years within a single party, or, or at least 20 years in some cases. So it's not going to put you on par with that. It's important to recognize that. Uh, but we now know that that Sam Bagman-Fried spent some $19 million on Republican candidates and committees. That makes him the GOP's 10th largest donor. 10th largest donor for the GOP. That's what he was. But when you talk about actual lobbying, so not donations, but hiring of lobbying firms, FTX only spent the measly sum of $430,000 on actual lobbying fees in calendar year 2022. And they only spent $50,000 in 2021. For perspective, Citigroup spends around $4 million a year on registered lobbyists at the federal level and about an equal amount on uh, civ civic engagement efforts or uh, various sorts of unregistered lobbying, propping up think tanks, things like this. Now, the FTX, uh, they did hire uh, Conway Graves Group or Conway Graves Group. Uh, this is a lobbying firm uh, that is that is run, founded by Congressman Mike Conway. Now, he was in charge of the House Agriculture Committee, which oversees the CFTC, the Commodity Futures Trading Commission, which has a lot of jurisdiction over cryptocurrencies, derivatives, of course, commodity futures, and things like that. So they did hire him. He seems to have done quite a lot for them, uh, even on such a small budget. They were able to, to get lobbying done to the extent that they uh, were able to get Tom Emmer, who was the head of the NRCC, now set to be House Republican whip, or House whip, that is, for the Republicans, second in charge behind the Speaker. 
they were able to, to basically get him to weigh in and slow down the SEC's inquiry into FTX. Uh, that is in a report out from the American Prospect titled, Congress Members Tied to uh, Tried to Stop rather the SEC's Inquiry into FTX. The Blockchain 8, as they're known, wrote a bipartisan letter in March attempting to chill the SEC's information requests into crypto firms. FTX was one of those firms. The report says the Securities and Exchange Commission was seeking information from collapsed cryptocurrency exchange FTX earlier this year. The prospect has confirmed bringing new perspective to an effort by bipartisan by a bipartisan group of lawmakers to slow down that investigation. The March letter from eight House members, four Democrats and four Republicans, questioned the SEC's authority to make informal inquiries into crypto and blockchain companies and intimated the request violated federal law. Rep. Tom Emmer, a Republican from Minnesota, whom the Republican caucus just elected as majority whip, uh, the three position, uh, the three, the number three position in House GOP leadership. Uh, so it's, you know, it's number three in terms of Republicans because the minority leader is technically the, the number two. But in any event, it's, it's number two in terms of the Republican side. Uh, my office has, so he actually, they went as far as tweeting. He tweeted, my office has received numerous tips from crypto and blockchain firms at SEC chair at Gary Gensler. Uh, information reporting, quote, requests to crypto community are overburdensome, uh, don't feel particularly dot, 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 voluntary, dot, 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 and are stifling innovation. So here's what you have to understand. This kind of what is known as regulatory intervention in the lobbying world is is very common. I, I have done this um, a dozen times this year to help out clients. First thing is not to blame the lobbyists. I mean, our, our job in things like this is not to be judge and jury. It's to be zealous advocates. Now, whether the members of Congress are receptive to our lobbying or not is on them. It's on them. Uh, now, additionally, whether or not executive branch agencies like the SEC uh, are, are, are ones which... Uh, you know, fold up under that pressure that comes from Congress is another question, and that's on them. So this idea of of lobbying Congress to work out acute regulatory situations in your favor is not um, something that's unusual. It's done all the time. And it's something that's protected by the First Amendment. Everyone has the right to lobby their government, including criminals, including uh including, frankly, foreigners can lobby this government with the proper disclosures, Foreign Agent Registration Act disclosures filed by those lobbyists who are doing that. So that's important to uh, realize here. Now, what I will tell you, though, is, is based on my personal experience, Tom Emmer going as far as sending out a public tweet uh, and, and, and tagging the SEC chair, that is highly unusual. Going that far is highly unusual. Um, it, it really is. And, and, and even, frankly, sending out one of these like dual signed by multiple congressional office, office letters to the SEC, that is highly unusual. Um, that letter was no doubt drafted by lobbyists for FTX, and then they just sort of sign off on it or their staffers sign off on the letter on their behalf in Congress. Uh, and, and that is unusual because generally speaking, these, these kind of situations are worked out with phone calls. Generally, phone calls from senior staff of the congressman, if not the congressman themselves, uh, or there's a private letter that is sent. Okay. The other thing to recognize is that congressmen, when it comes to their records and things like this, they're not really subject to the 
uh, Freedom of Information Act. So, you know, of course, it's possible that letters can leak and things like this, but they don't usually. And they don't usually come out of SEC either uh, in response to FOIA requests. So uh, it's something that's usually handled behind the scenes. It's handled privately. And frankly, the lobbying effort is is usually more effective when it's handled that way because you don't want to be in a situation where, where as a lobbyist, you lead Congress to do something that basically embarrasses the regulator or 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 throws fuel on the fire of the, the regulatory agency in question. And that's what they risk doing here by being so public. And it shows that there was clearly some desperation. The other thing to recognize here is that voluntary information requests by the SEC are completely routine. And he says they don't feel exactly voluntary. Well, they're not. That's why. The SEC, the CFTC, I mean, I when I was involved in the financial business, had these kind of requests come in. It, 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 they're basically one step short of a subpoena. And the intimation of those requests is that if you destroy evidence after receiving one, it has the same penalties as a subpoena. And if you don't reply quickly to it and get the information to them, it will be followed up with a subpoena. The reason that they are done rather than a subpoena is because they're simpler. Um, the standard is lower. And if you don't have to go to doing a subpoena and things can be cleared up with a simple voluntary information request, well, that's all the better because you can clear things up and close the investigation and be done with it. So uh, the, the framing of these information requests is unusual by the congressman here is, is, is not exactly true. So that is what went on here. Uh, there was there was massive uh, uh, giving. So uh, Emmer was in charge of the NRCC, the National Republican Congressional Committee. And this is basically the campaign arm for House Republicans, main campaign, kind of like Senate Leadership Fund. Um, so this is basically a PAC, in other words, is more or less what it is. They received some $2.75 million from FTX in the 2022 cycle. Uh, two million from Salami in late September, and seven hundred fifty thousand from the company's political action committee. So, while Sam Bankman-Fried himself didn't give money to Republicans, I, as I told you before, in early reporting, both on my Telegram channel and on the show, there were other frontmen within the company who dealt with Republicans. So they had their Republican frontman, they had their Democrat frontmen, uh, and they worked on both sides. And and any coherent lobbying effort of this sort would do that. We have Democrats at our firm who we subcontract lobbying assignments out to because you need help from both sides of the aisle. Great Democrats, uh, Democrat lobbyists who we uh, tap for things that, that are basically subcontractors and or, or, or kind of outside uh, informal partners. And uh, we do things like that all the time from a lobbying standpoint. So this is really um, not that unusual, but it does show you here that Republicans do not have clean hands. And this will color uh, basically the degree to which these investigations are done seriously. Uh, there's allegedly hearings coming up December 1 on this matter in Congress, and you will find that Republicans are not probing all that deeply. They're going to get in their one-liners to go on Hannity and have them played and have their clips. But guys, congressional investigations are not something that generally lead to much of anything taking place, and, and I don't think this one will be any different. Uh, we continue on here, though, talking about all this. And, you know, one thing that, that became clear uh, this week is that there was this thread that came out by this woman at Semaphore, 
which is a startup media outlet. And, um, I think Hill was her last name. And it was, it was, it, it had this contorted long, like four page letter that was barely coherent that Sam Bankman freed, even though he's an investigation now recently sent out to FTX former employees, I guess. And she tweets out the letter and then she has a long thread where she says, basically, this makes sense to me. It doesn't seem like there was anything really done criminally wrong here. It was just a run on the bank with uh, funny money collateral and real money debts and the funny money went down in value. And uh, it's just one of those situations like Lehman Brothers. And that, of course, wouldn't obviate responsibility, but it might obviate somebody from criminal responsibility. And criminal intent. And of course, that's a bunch of nonsense. It completely ignores the fact that, th- that there's been stolen funds to a massive degree here and all of, and all the rest. And that FTT was a security and it would have been used as collateral in an unregulated fashion uh, and in unregistered fashion without the proper uh, kinds of disclosures, Form Ds and the like. Not to mention state regulators who love to get involved in these kinds of things from time to time. And you look and it's like, oh, this startup media outlet semaphore. Yeah, uh, turns out they were getting millions of dollars from FTX, both in the form of advertising. And it turns out they were a seed investor in this media outlet. And these people, I guess there's all these people at Semaphore now, like Shelby Talcott, who used to work at the Daily Caller, who I've kind of known somewhat over the years. And um, Ben Smith from the New York Times. Remember BuzzFeed Ben is what he used to be known as, BuzzFeed Ben. And then he went to the New York Times. Well, I guess he joined this outlet, unbeknownst to me. Uh, I, I just realized. So FTX basically propped them up. And then they sort of spun out of control saying, well, uh, Sam Bankman fried has 100 million of Twitter. Uh, look, Elon Musk was lying. And it's like, no, it looks like he bought 100 million of Twitter on the public market before the company was bought, pri- brought private. That's not Elon Musk's responsibility. And if, in fact, it was brought private, then they probably got a cash payout for their stock, which was just voided, basically, is what happens. So it's all very ridiculous. The media has clearly paid off with this. New York Times just out yesterday with another puff piece about all of this, saying that the headline was, Sam Bankman fried tried to win friends and influence people. It talks about all his giving and all his donations. Doesn't mention that it wasn't his money. Doesn't mention that he himself admitted it was all a smokescreen and a fraud to keep the underlying crime from being discovered. Admits that. So it's just unbelievable. And now the New York Times is still having him at this uh, deal book conference alongside Volodymyr Zelensky and Mike Pence and Benjamin Netanyahu and Janet Yellen, the damn Treasury Secretary. How these other speakers can even still show up at this event alongside this fraudster is just beyond belief to me. You'd think that they would step out of the conference, but I guess nothing is beneath these people. And uh, so they're going to have him there, $2,500 a ticket if you'd like to uh, go join. Uh, It's just unreal, the the degree to which the media was bought off by this. And it it makes me, and and I've totally shied away from the conspiracies on on all this, like that this was a CIA money laundering. It doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you you advertise and make the thing so public if it were a CIA money laundering front? Could be. It just, I, I don't buy into those theories. I think it's interesting enough as it is. I don't need to ascribe more to it than I see in the evidence. But 
I will say when I start to see the way the media is treating this and it's so galling and it's so obvious and it's, and it's just, it's so, so bad. I do start to think that perhaps these reporters were personally bribed and the editors were personally bribed because it is so bad now that it's more than just covering up their reputation, laundering their reputation. Uh, it, it is so, so beyond belief. I mean, Forbes just yesterday, like late in the day, released another video saying that this was just a run on the bank, just an innocent bank run, just yesterday. And and saying that, well, Sam Bankman-Fried started this Alameda and made billions of dollars uh, doing inter-exchange arbitrage. There's no evidence that Sam Bankman-Fried ever did any trading with that hedge fund, much less profitable trading. Now, there were transactions that happened, exchanging one currency for another to buy equity here or do that there. But what it appears is that all their investments, for the most part, with a little Twitter stock here, a little something there, but most of them were front companies that were completely fake. So there's no evidence of that, that they, that they ever traded profitably, and yet Forbes is still pretending that this was just a little mishap. It's just disgusting. It's it's sickening. I, I I don't know. I don't. I just don't even know what to say anymore. Interchange albatross. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Not arbitrage. Interchange something here. Um. Did you see the Forbes right wing dating article? Yeah. 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 No. It's just. It's crazy. I. You know, saying that basically the alt right is responsible for Carolyn Ellison, and it, it's just. It's just unbelievable. These media people cannot be trusted. Now you see that. Now you see that so clearly. Don't believe a word of what they say. Never, ever. Yeah. So it's just absolutely unbelievable. Uh, and uh, well, anyway, folks, have a great rest of your Thanksgiving. Um, enjoy your time uh, this Thanksgiving, whatever you happen to be doing. Uh you know, uh, try to manage your risk around the roads and drunk drivers and rush hour traffic and don't drive under the influence and all that stuff. I don't have to tell you this. I have a very high functioning audience, but just manage your risk uh, this Thanksgiving to not become a statistic. It's been great to have you. Happy Thanksgiving to all of you. I'll be back Monday, 2 p.m. Eastern time live here on YouTube and then on podcast apps everywhere shortly thereafter. Of course, you can support the show if you're feeling uh, grateful for the broadcast. If you're getting value from what we're doing here, you can go to Cash App Real Jacob Wool. You can go to jacobwool.org slash podcast to use the Gumroad platform to make a donation. Uh, that is Cash App Real Jacob Wool, Gumroad. Uh, you just go to jacobwool.org slash podcast. And you can send in your questions at jacobwell.org slash contact uh, with or without a donation. I'll be happy to take them on the next episode. Thanks so much for watching and I'll see you on Monday.